Thank you for taking time to listen to this week's message from Horizon West Church. You can find even more content, including video archives of this and other past messages at horizonwestchurch.com. And if you're in the Horizon West area, be sure to visit us sometime soon. Now enjoy this podcast from Horizon West Church. I want you to get out your phone and I want you to enter into your map the city that you grew up in. Now, maybe you grew up in a lot of different places, but, but go to the place where, you know, that you really have some memories from childhood, a place that was really an anchor for you, a place you consider home. And I want you to punch it in, and then I want you to uh, click on, like, directions, and I want you to, to see how many miles you are from the place you grew up in. Does everybody understand the instruction? Okay, so you're on your phone, city you grew up in, and then how many miles you are from that place. I did this earlier in the week. I'll give you my number, but I'm curious... Who might be the furthest away from the home they grew up in? How many of you are more than 500 miles from the place you grew up in? Okay, a lot of you. Yeah, a lot of you. Keep your hands up. How many of you are more than 700 miles from the place you grew up in? Okay. How many 900 or more miles from the place you grew up in? How many are over 1,000? This is a, a, wow. This is more than half of our, our room tonight. Okay. You guys online, I want you doing this too. You can type it in. How many miles are you from the place you grew up in? All right, anybody more than 1,500 miles from the place you grew up in? Yep, yep, okay. Anybody more than 1,800 miles? Anybody more than 2,000 miles? All right, you're all winners then. This is our, this is our Islanders and this is our uh, Latin American uh, community. I love it, I love it. Well, I did this earlier in the week. I grew up in Sebring, Florida. Sebring is 80 miles. So how many of you are less than 100 miles from where you grew up? Less. Just a few of us. Okay. All right. Well, why did I do that? Here's why. Life over time has a tendency to to take us in different directions, right? And, And oftentimes, this might feel like it's beyond our control, but really it's pretty intentional, right? We, we left home to go to school. We left home for a job. We left home for a girl or a guy. Did that work out? Never mind. But, but we, we go from the place that we began by intention. But let me tell you, we also tend to leave home spiritually, but we do it by accident. We don't intend to walk away from God. We don't intend to do things that take us further from Him, but life happens and it's possible to wake up one day and realize I'm a long way from home spiritually. I don't always title my messages. In fact, I normally don't title them, but the Lord gave me two and I'm going to use them both for this week. So the message today is going to be titled this, How to be far from God or How to be a Pharisee. Because sadly, these are one and the same message, not two. If you don't know who the Pharisees were, the Pharisees were a group of religious leaders, pastor types, that lived in the first century during Jesus' time, and these men thought they were the ones closest to God. They were the ones who knew the book the best, and they thought it was their job to show other people how to have a relationship with God, how to be good with God. Yet sadly, what we learn in the New Testament is that no one was further from God than the Pharisees. In fact, Jesus in Matthew chapter 15, verse 18, gave a stinging rebuke to these men with these words. He said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Translation, 
These guys look good. They look close. The truth is, they are far from me. So as I was preparing over the last two weeks, uh, I came to a sobering reality that I want to share with you as we, as we kind of dive into the message today. If you know who the Apostle Paul is, the Apostle Paul wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, so kind of the back uh, about this much, actually it's exactly that much, of your, of your Bible, okay? And you may know that before the Apostle Paul was the Apostle Paul, he was the Pharisee Saul. And he was so uh, on fire for God that he found a group of people that he believed were far from God, and he said, I'm going to persecute these people. The problem is those people were Christians. And as Saul is on his way to a place called Damascus to persecute Christians, Jesus shows up and says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And in that moment, Saul realized, oh, I'm not as close to God as I thought I was. And Saul experienced the mercy of God in the person of Jesus, and it changed his life. And Saul, the Pharisee, became Paul, the humble, broken recipient of God's mercy in Jesus. Here was the sobering reality that I had. I wonder if most Christians don't have the opposite trajectory. Where we begin as grateful and humble recipients of the mercy of God. We say, God, I'm a sinner. I'm in need of mercy. And we have this moment with God where he cancels our sin. He forgives us. He brings us into his family. And we're humble and we have faith and we worship and we are so grateful. And then over time, we become a little more like the Pharisees. We start to think, you know, maybe I wasn't so bad after all. Maybe these people are lucky that I'm on their team. So here's what we're going to do today. How to be a Pharisee. I want to give you four habits that will help you become a Pharisee if that's what you're going for. Or four habits that will take you far from God. Go to Luke chapter 7 with me. Luke 7, if you don't have a Bible, that's okay. We're going to have it on the screen for you. Luke 7, verse 36 to 40. This is what it says. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house, and he reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that Jesus was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment or perfume, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And she wiped them with her hair, the hair of her head, and she kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who this is and what sort of woman she is who's touching him, for she's a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. Pope Gregory the Great, a 6th century pope, nearly 1,500 years ago, commenting on this passage, said these words, When I think of this event, I am more inclined to weep over it than to preach upon it. So before we dive in, I I would wonder if, would you allow the posture of your heart to receive this event in Scripture as more than black and white words on a page? I I think God wants to do something in our hearts that, that, that may even lead to an emotional response. This is the response Pope Gregory was talking about. This is the scene, basically, that we walk into. Jesus is is eating in the home of a Pharisee named Simon, and what was supposed to be a formal meal with Jesus is turned upside down, is disrupted 
by an uninvited and unnamed guest. We simply know this woman as a sinner. Now there's been speculation that maybe this is Mary Magdalene or this is uh, the woman in John 8 or this is some other woman, but to be honest with you, my belief is that this is none of those women. We should probably understand this to be a standalone woman that we don't see anywhere else in the New Testament, but who has this profound experience with Jesus. That's what I believe we're dealing with. And let me read again verse 39, the Pharisee's response to this woman. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she is a sinner. The first habit to become a Pharisee is to see categories rather than people. Did you catch that? If he knew what sort of woman she is, well, Simon, what sort of woman is she? And by the way, Simon, what kind of man are you? Simon saw categories. He didn't see people. He saw a sinner. Friends, we live in a day and an age, and in this season especially, where it is massively tempting to find categories to put people in. By the way, it can feel helpful. It's almost like our our minds psychologically need to to put a handle on people, and so we see their post, and we go, that's that sort of person. Or we uh, see their bumper sticker, and we go, okay, that's that sort of person. Or we see the way they dress or the way they conduct themselves and we go, okay, that's that sort of person and we've got them all over the place and we're doing a great job becoming a Pharisee but we're doing a terrible job acting like Jesus because Jesus didn't see categories. He saw people. Simon reduced everything that this woman was, her pain and her personality, her fear and her failures to a single category, sinner. Sinner. Simon saw all he needed to see to put her in this category. But what's interesting to me is not just that he puts the woman in a category. His response reveals that there's somebody else he's going to try to put in a category. Did you catch that? Remember what he says about Jesus? If this man were what? A prophet. Ooh, this is interesting. In, in one thought, in one uh, mental decision, Simon has put the woman in a category called sinner and he's crossed off the category for Jesus called prophet. The woman's a sinner. Jesus is not a prophet. We need a new category for him. In fact, I, I think I can prove that this is what's going on because the verses right before the passage we're reading, listen to what Jesus says to the Pharisees. This is verse uh, 33 of, of Luke 7. John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. That's the category. He's demon-possessed. 34, the Son of Man, Jesus, comes eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Category, 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 category. And Jesus says, verse 35, but wisdom is justified by all her children. Translation, You know who's in the right category, but what their life produces. That's how you know. It's not about the category. It's about what is produced by the life and that springs from the heart. Interestingly, Jesus says, Simon, I have something to say to you. And do you notice Simon's response? With hypocrisy just oozing from his lips, he says, say it, teacher. I'm all ears. 
I'm your humble student. Advise me. That's not his heart, right? But remember, these are men who honor with their lips, but their hearts are far away. And so that's what's going on here. Uh, let's go to verse 41, Luke 7, 41. Jesus is going to tell a story to illustrate a point. Jesus does this a lot, doesn't he? Verse 41 of Luke 7, and this is what it says. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, the debt, I suppose, of the one, uh, sorry, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged correctly. Now, this is reminiscent of other places in the New Testament, in the Gospels, where our sin is compared to financial debt. Okay? Uh, this is uh, Matthew 18, Colossians 2.14. Those are examples of that. But Jesus is going to say, hey, Simon, in order for you to understand what's going on here, this is the story. And the story is one person owes what amounts to a year and a half's salary. Okay? That's the amount of denarii, 500 denarii in that coinage. That's a year and a half salary. The other owes 50 denarii, which is a little less than two months' worth of salary. Okay? And Jesus says, Simon, follow me. These two men both owe these debts. One's massive, one's relatively small. The, the one who the debt is against says, hey, guys, you don't have to pay it back. Now, which one's going to be more ecstatic? Simon goes, well, I, I would think it would make sense that the one who owed the bigger debt is going to love the man more. And Jesus says, I think tongue-in-cheek, you've judged rightly. Because, Simon, up to this point, you haven't judged anything rightly, but you're right. You get it. You understand the point of the story. And here is the point of the story. The greater the sin debt that's canceled, the greater the gratitude from the one forgiven. Right? Canceling a $5,000 credit card debt is going to cause me to be really thankful. Canceling my mortgage is going to change my life. Right? I don't have a $5,000 credit card debt. I'm just saying, were that the case... And I've had it in the past. We're getting too into that. But, but he's, that, that's, we've been there, right? We all owe money to things. It's like, man, yes, if somebody would cancel a debt like that for me, that would be huge. Here's the second habit the Pharisees have. Assume you're in the right category. See, see categories, not people, first. And then secondly, assume you are in the right category. It is profoundly pharisaical to operate with the assumption that everybody else is the problem. This is where we are, friends. This is where we are in a society. If the people would just think like me, vote like me, believe like... If, if people were just more like me, the world would be a better place. I'm not the problem. They're the problem. Guess what? It's what everybody thinks right? The people that are voting differently than you think you're the problem, but it's pharisaical. We, we all make this, I say we all, we have a tendency all to assume that we're in the right category. Now there's an obvious question that we need to answer from Jesus's story, and it's this. Is Jesus implying that the woman's sin was greater than Simon's? Because go back to the story. Remember one owed a huge debt and one owed a small debt? It seems to be that Jesus is saying the, the woman might have this really large debt and, and Simon's just got this small debt. But here's the truth. The amount of the debt is irrelevant. It doesn't matter. Here's the key. Verse 42. Jesus says, when they could not pay. 
It doesn't matter if you owe $500 or $5 million. When you owe less than you can pay, you're in debt. Right? You're in debt. When you can't, what Simon believed was that he had this bank account that he could bring to the table and say, yes, I might owe a little bit, but look at all the money I can bring to the table. Jesus says, no, Simon. Neither of these people could pay the debt. Translation, you think she's worse off than you? You're in the same place. You are both sinners in need of a savior. Charles Spurgeon said this, too many think lightly of, a sin and, of sin and therefore lightly of a savior. See, because Simon didn't really think he had wronged God that much, because Simon believed everybody else was the problem, because Simon believed that he was in the right category, he did not think much of who Jesus was. In fact, he rejected him. Go back to the text, Luke 7 and verse 44 to 48. Jesus uh, now is going to turn to Simon. This is what he says. uh, Turning toward the woman, he says to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. There's a question in the beginning of Jesus' statement to Simon that, that, to be honest with you, every time I've read this prior to this past week, I've just kind of skipped past it. It felt like just kind of a, a, a transitional statement to the next part of the story. I think it's profoundly more than that, and I want to read it again. Verse 44, Jesus says to Simon, Do you see this woman because the truth is he had not he had seen a category he hadn't seen the person and Jesus is going to say time out Simon (laughs) so full of yourself so sure of your own righteousness would you stop for a second and would you see this woman and now Simon let me tell you about this woman see I think we need to grapple with a question that will be come a massively important question, the answer will determine the way you treat people. This is the question. Do you see people primarily as bad or primarily as broken? Now, some of you are going to go, well, they're bad, right? Because they're dead in their sin and they're enemies of God. And, they're, and, and yes, that's true. We, we are naturally at enmity with God. It means we are enemies of God because of our sin. There is evil in the heart of man. Even our, even our good deeds, Isaiah says, are like filthy rags. We've got nothing in our bank account. We are spiritually bankrupt. That's all true. Man is not good. So you could say, yeah, I think man is bad. I think people are bad. But interestingly, Jesus seemed to treat people like they were broken. And this is why this is so important. If I see people as bad, then they need a judge. They need someone to punish them. They need retribution. But if I see people primarily as broken, they need a healer. They need a savior. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. That's John 3.17. You know John 3.16, but that's John 3.17. Even Jesus did not come to judge bad people. He came to save and to heal and to restore broken people. The Pharisees did the opposite. 
They believed their account with God was good, and it showed in the way they treated Jesus. This is the third habit of the Pharisee. Do only what is required. Go, go back to the passage for a second. So Jesus says, Simon, do you see this woman? He hadn't looked at her yet. He hadn't really taken the time to, to consider her yet. So he looks, and Jesus says this, Simon, he's going to contrast them with three, three things. First, the washing of feet. It was customary, you may not know, it was customary in the first century that when you were a guest in a home, because you're kicking up dirt and you're wearing sandals, they didn't have closed-toed shoes yet, you know, and so you walk into the home and your feet are dirty. By the way, when it says they reclined at the table, they were not sitting in chairs, they were laying with their elbow on the floor and their feet behind them and they're like stacked up around each other. So guess what? If your feet are dirty, I smell them. Okay, this is why in John chapter 13, when the disciples gather for the Last Supper with Jesus, they're all looking at each other going, you, you're going to wash the feet? Or you, where, where's, there's no, the servant's supposed to wash the feet, but the servant's not here. It's just 12 disciples and Jesus. If I raise my hand, if I go first, if I wash the feet, I'm like, I'm basically saying I'm the servant. I can't do that. I've got to be, you know, with, the, with the, the, the power brokers here, the disciples. Remember what Jesus did? He takes off his outer clothes, puts a towel around his waist. He gets down on a knee. And Jesus begins to wash the disciples' feet. It's like, what? And Jesus was demonstrating the heart of a servant. And he said, you need to do this as well. You need to do the same thing. Serve one another. Simon did not wash Jesus' feet because Simon wasn't a servant. He didn't see himself that way. And yet this woman not only washes Jesus' feet, but she washes them with her tears, demonstrating more than servitude. She's demonstrating utter brokenness at the feet of Jesus. And then there's this kiss of greeting that Jesus mentions. Not like a kiss we think about. It's basically a way to say hello, to greet somebody. Jesus says, Simon, you didn't give me the kiss of greeting. It's customary to do that. You didn't do it. I don't know why Simon didn't do it. Maybe Simon was so busy with the details, or maybe there were other guests who were a little more important than Jesus. But he neglected that basic custom. And Jesus says, you didn't give me the kiss of greeting, but this woman, she's been kissing my feet since the moment I walked in. And then the anointing with oil. Again, this was actually, this of the three is the least customary, but it would have been a kind gesture to anoint the head with oil. It's kind of almost like a, a shower, you know, in the first century. It's a way of cleansing and purifying. He says, you didn't do that. But the woman broke her jar of perfume and poured it all on my feet. Remember Simon's categories? He's right, she's wrong. He's the righteous one, she's the sinner. Remember the verse? Wisdom is proved right by her children, by what it produces. Uh-oh, Simon, your life shows no faith, no love, no gratitude, no hospitality, no worship. And Simon, her life shows all of it. Now, Simon, who is the righteous one? Now, what category is she in? And also, what category are you in? Did you notice as Jesus is speaking that everything this woman does is at the feet of Jesus? Going back to Charles Spurgeon again, he said this, Christ holds us in his arms, on his shoulders, and in his heart, but our most usual place is at his feet. The goal of all true preaching is to bring the hearer at the feet of mercy. I prayed before I preached this morning that someone tonight, maybe for the first time, 
would be brought to the feet of Jesus. Because there was a lot of people in the room. Simon himself was in the room with Jesus, but he was not at the feet of Jesus. And this made all the difference in the world. It's the difference of living worship and dead religion. It's the difference of an unsaved person, an unredeemed person, and a saved person. It's the difference of spiritual death on one side and spiritual life on another. Friends, all of us are in the room, and even if you're watching online, figuratively speaking, you're in the room. The question's not, are you in the room? The question is, are you at the feet of Jesus? That is where mercy is found. That is where the woman goes. And that is why in verse 47, Jesus says, Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who's forgiven little loves little. Now, it's important to note that Jesus is not saying this woman's forgiven because of her acts of love. It's what it sounds like, the way, he, the way it's stated, right? She's forgiven much because she loves much. Jesus isn't saying that. It's actually made more clear later in the verse when he says, but he who's forgiven little loves little. Notice the cause and effect looks like it shifts. It's always the same. Jesus is saying, not, man, look at all these loving acts she did. I'm going to forgive her because she's a good person. Jesus is looking at all these loving acts of the woman and going, this can only be evidence of one thing. She has been forgiven. People don't love like this until their hearts have been purified by the grace of God. It was the evidence of her forgiveness. It wasn't the impetus for it. See, I think there's this inextricable link between grace and love. The love of God compelled him to make a way for us to experience grace through the death of Jesus. And the grace of God compels us to extend Christ's love to others. Grace and love, love and grace. And here's how the story ends, verses 49 and 50. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Verse 50, and Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. Now who do you think were the people that were at the table with Jesus and with Simon at the party? I can tell you who they were. They were the Pharisees. They were other religious leaders. They were other people who felt like They deserve to be at the table. And after Jesus tells this profound story that should have moved their hearts and then really drives it home by showing this clear contrast between the actions of the Pharisees and this woman, they're not moved at all. They still have their categories all wrong. Here's the fourth and final habit in becoming a Pharisee, the fourth habit that will take you far from God. Remain committed to your preconceived notions. Man, hold on to those things. If you want to be a Pharisee, if you want to get far from God, just hold on to your preconceived notions. Let nothing change you from them. Because here's the tragedy in the story. Simon and the other Pharisees could have asked the question this way. Who is this that even forgives sins? Like, I really want to know. I need this. Who is this who forgives sins? That wasn't the tone. It was more like this. Who does this guy think he is? Going around telling people their sins are forgiven. See, the posture of their heart was in the wrong place. 
they held on to their preconceived notions. Though Jesus had already raised a paralytic, though Jesus had already healed the blind, though Jesus had already driven demons out of people, though Jesus had already fed 5,000 people and walked on water and on and on, the Pharisees remained committed to their preconceived notions. The evidence told them he's the son of God. Their preconceived notions said that can't be true, so they followed their notions rather than the evidence. And people are still doing it to this day. In stark contrast, Jesus says to the woman, and it's the last words of the passage, verse 50, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. I don't know that this woman had ever known peace in her life before. She'd known guilt. She'd known ridicule, shame, rejection, exclusion, isolation. But peace, this was new. This came only from Jesus. See, I said at the beginning that I was calling this how to be far from God or how to be a Pharisee. The truth is, I don't think you came today, I don't think you're watching online today to learn how to be a Pharisee. I think what you want to know is how do I be like that woman? How do I get there? That's what I want, right? I, I, I want hope and gratitude and love and worship. I want it to just pour out of my heart. But you might say today, but Chris, that's just not what's happening in my life right now. That's not just emanating from me. How do I get back there? How do I be like this woman? And I'm going to give you a really simple answer that I believe sums the whole thing up. This is it. You know how you become like this woman? You know how you become close to God? You never get far from the place that Jesus first met you. You never get far from there. See, I think this woman could not get over the fact that her sins would be forgiven by someone like Jesus. She just couldn't get over it. It was emotional. It was fresh. It, it produced something in her life. It drove her to the feet of Jesus. She never got far from the place that his mercy met her. Earlier this week, I miraculously had a day that pretty much cleared up. My calendar and my schedule, that never happens. It certainly never happens on a Wednesday, right, in the middle of the week. I was like, okay, ma'am, how is that? I got plenty of stuff to do. I got work and emails, but, but I have no meetings this whole day, you know. And the Lord impressed in my heart that I needed to go back to Sebring, 80 miles down the road where I grew up. I told my wife, I said, baby, I'm, I think I'm going to go to Sebring on Wednesday. She was like, why? I said, well, well, I mean, for one, my dad is there. and it was Dad, if you're watching, it was good to see you, and Mama. And, but I said, here's why. Here's why I need to go to Sebring. This Saturday, I'm going to tell Horizon West Church, and I'm going to tell people that are watching online, never get far from the place that Jesus first met you. And I want to go back to some of those places where I first encountered God. And I, I want to physically go back there. And so on Wednesday, I went back. I met with my dad and, and, and my mom for a little while, and, and then I, I went to a place called Camp Sparta. It's about five miles from where I grew up. It's a little Christian camp that when I was nine years old, good religious kid sitting around a campfire, hearing other nine and ten-year-olds one by one at the end of our camp experience tell their testimonies, realizing I have no testimony. I, I have no walk with God. I know how to do the external stuff, but I don't know Jesus. And I began to weep 
around that campfire. And, and two thoughts flooded my heart and my mind, and they're going to sound like it was two different thoughts, but they were one and the same thought. One, I have nothing to offer God. I am so unworthy of his love. And two, his love is overwhelming me right now. See, those are one and the same experience. When we come to the end of ourselves, when we realize that we are sinners in need of a Savior and we invite him, that's when Jesus comes and Jesus met me there as a nine-year-old. And the campfire moved where it is now. The lady said, yeah, it's just right down there. I said, yeah, but that's not where it was. I'm going where it was. And I found this little pile of rubble and stump and I'm like, that was it. I remember this, the trees that were there and the lake, like this is where the campfire was. And I stood on a cool day. And I remember when Jesus showed up to a nine-year-old kid. And then I went a little further down the road to a place that used to be called EJ's Cafe. It's vacant now. It's locked up. But I stood outside of that old restaurant where I had a conversation at 15 years old with a friend named Matt and then went home and opened my Bible and started reading the Gospel of John and came to John chapter 10, verse 10, which says, in the words of Jesus, I have come that you may have life and have it to the fullest. And I stepped out on a on a hope and a prayer that maybe that was true. And that's where Jesus called me into full-time ministry, called me to preach the word. And I stood outside of that restaurant and I just thanked God for his calling, thanked God for meeting me there at 15. I wanna challenge you this week to carve out some time to go back to the place where Jesus met you. Now, for some of you, that's probably not gonna happen <laughs> physically, but for some of you, it can. Because for some of you, you know where that was? Was our John Young campus on the other side of town, or another church in our area, or, or maybe the home that you grew up in that you're no longer at, or, or whatever it is. Some of you can tangibly, physically go back. I want to encourage you to do that and to take some time just quietly to remember and to thank God for the mercy that he showed you. And for the rest of you, that might just be an experience in the spiritual realm where you carve out an hour or an hour and a half or two hours and you just open up your Bible to a familiar verse or a verse that God used to change your life and you just say, God, thank you for saving me. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for bringing me to the feet of Jesus. And I want to challenge you this week. Would you do just that? Thanks again for listening to the Horizon West Church Podcast. If you were inspired or encouraged by something you heard today, share it with a friend. For more information like our service time, location, and other info, be sure to visit us online at horizonwestchurch.com. Have a great week.